This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, something a little bit different. I interviewed a really fascinating woman. Her name is Leah Aharoni, and she is the director of Women for the Wall. Now, she has many other roles as well. She is a business professional, consultant, entrepreneur, has a really interesting personal life story with a Russian background, and then to America, and then to Israel. A really cool person generally. But the organization that she spearheads, Women for the Wall, is something that enters into, I would say, a little bit more controversial territory than I'm used to exploring. There is a well-known organization called Women of the Wall, and hence the play on words with her organizational name. And Women of the Wall hosts various events, mostly on a monthly basis, at the Kotel at the Western Wall, promoting a certain brand of egalitarian prayer or of women-led services that many in the more orthodox camp find offensive and concerning. And this enters into a really, really fascinating topic about who sets the standards at a shared religious space like the Western Wall, certainly perhaps the most prominent such example in the world. How should those disputes be negotiated? What is the character of the state of Israel with respect to religion and state type matters? What is the appropriate approach to dealing with parties with whom you disagree and perhaps disagree vociferously? All these themes were touched on today. And again, I don't normally get into topics that some listeners could find objectionable or difficult on either side of an aisle. But I did so today because the Western Wall, after all, is such a central and profoundly important place in our culture and heritage. And I think it's a fascinating conversation to have and a really interesting way of bringing out the debate. For full disclosure, I am certainly partial to the perspective shared by our guest today, but I let you make your own determinations. I try my best to play devil's advocate, to push back a little bit, or more than a little bit, and you'll decide how this lands for you. Either way, I think it's definitely a fascinating listen and a wonderful window into how society in Israel functions, as well as an introduction to a really committed, talented, and really empowered woman in Leah Aharoni. I'm also releasing this episode specifically right around the time of Tisha B'Av. I'm sure, though, many will listen at a different time. But nevertheless, my actual release date, although we recorded several months ago, is on the day before Tisha B'Av, where, of course, we mourn the loss and the destruction of our temple, both temples, in fact, and where we focus intensely on that geographic space that the Western Wall occupies, really the Western Wall actually being somewhat of a bittersweet remnant of what we once had and once again hope to have. But I thought the subject matter was appropriate given the times and the concept of arguments and debates between Jews among members of our people, which have been very rancorous and 
fact, cancerous over the years, but at the same time are often unavoidable in a certain sense. And we need to think about the right way to have those arguments and which topics they're most appropriate for. So a slightly longer than usual intro for me today, but I thought it was important to give some framing, some context to today's interview. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media. Jews You Should Know spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Wherever you are listening, please subscribe, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, any number of podcast platforms. Give us a subscribe and help others do so as well. Comments and questions to JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Women for the Wall founder and leader, Leah Aharoni. We are here with Leah Aharoni, a longtime Israeli businesswoman, business owner, consultant, coach, as well as now a, an HR officer for a major Israeli television station, and very well known as the founder of Women for the Wall, which deals with the thorny issues of the various roles that different people play at the Western Wall, an amazing and powerful spot for the Jewish people, the center of our Jewish universe nowadays. But we'll get into all that first. How are you, Leah? Hi, how are you, Ari? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. So you're coming to us from Israel, you said from Kochav Yaakov, I think you said. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from originally and, and kind of where you grew up. Okay, so I was actually born in Russia, in Moscow, during the Soviet times. And I remember living behind the Iron Curtain. When I was 12, my family picked up from Russia when the Iron Curtain fell, and we moved to the United States. So I spent my high school years and a little bit of college in New York. I went to school in New Jersey. And then um, two weeks after graduating high school, I... Um, but a one-way ticket to Israel. I basically made Aliyah, came to Israel. I was 17. Oh, my. What prompted that? What prompted that? Um, when, I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I met some people that introduced me to Rabbi Cook's teaching, Rabbi Avram Yitzhak Cook. He was the chief rabbi of the land of Israel about 100 years ago. And he wrote a lot about you know, the prominence of the land of Israel and about the need for Jews to come back and live in Israel. And, um, and learning this text basically made me realize that just like it's a mitzvah, it's a positive commandment you know, to keep Shabbat and to uh, eat kosher, it's also a positive commandment in the Torah to live in the land of Israel. It's a positive commandment that the Jewish people couldn't keep for a long, for a long time because of you know, security issues and political issues. But today, we can do this. So just like you know, people need to make sacrifices to to preserve a religious lifestyle, they also need to make sacrifices to be able to live in the land of Israel. But the truth is, today don't really need to make sacrifices to live in Israel. It's you know, it's gorgeous and beautiful and developed, and it's it's just a pleasure to be living in Israel. So, uh, how did your family feel about you coming, uh, leaving them? Um, okay, well, this came after I became religious because I wasn't born religious and my family was not observant. So when I was thirteen, I became religious and. Then, and observance, so that was the first shock, and then me leaving was sort of like the second, the second wave. So um, second wave, you got to be careful now during coronavirus. 
<laughs> use that term. Right. Yeah. <laughs> people, you might give people some, uh, you might trigger some people. <laughs> so then what uh, caused you to become religious at such a young, tender age? Interesting. So literally for as long as I can remember, I had a very, very strong sense of Jewish identity. We had a non-Jewish uh, family member. And when I was five, she would tease me. That would stand up on the couch and say, I am Jewish, you know. And, and when I was in third grade in Russia, you had, you had to, you know, fill out this application. And it basically set the stage for your entire life. And in it, you had to write your nationality. Now, my father was registered as, Pol as Polish. So I, I could use that and be registered as a, you know, a Polish person. And I said, no, I was like nine years old. I said, no, I'm Jewish. That's what I'm going to write. And I don't care what they think. And, you know, I don't care what the prices are, you know. And um, so I've had a very strong Jewish identity, you know, for as long as I can remember. I can also remember like feeling and praying to God without knowing a lot about it. And at one point, I think I was like 10, my mother and I went on vacation in the winter. And just like in good Jewish Hasidic stories, she took me into the snow-covered, you know, wood, deep into the woods to tell me everything she knew about Judaism and Israel away from prying ears. And we're talking about, like, 1987, and she was telling me stories from, like, 1967, you know? But those, those are the stories that she knew and heard. And, like, bits and pieces of Jewish custom that, you know, survived in the family and, you know, that really felt like superstitions and only after I became religious I realized that there were like leftovers of Jewish laws and Jewish ritual so she shared those with me and um, so she really instilled my mother really instilled this very strong Jewish identity in me and and when we left Russia we had to make a stop over in, in Europe before we could go to the United States and when you came, when you got to Europe they would ask you okay do you want to go to Israel do you want to go to the United States and I remember we got over the plane and my mother says, when they ask us, we're going to America, you better be quiet. <laughs> you know, but if you raise somebody a Zionist, he's going to make Aliyah at some point. You know, that, you know, that's par for the course. Interestingly, I mean, that's a bit of a cry from feeling connected Jewishly and Jewishly proud to starting to formally be observant at that age. I mean, and it sounds like you didn't have a lot of formal education. So how did you even know kind of what to do? And did you have any role models? Were you involved in any youth groups? So just before we left Russia, when I was about 11, the first like harbingers of democracy and free speech reached Russia. And somebody organized 5,000 prayer books and, and Humashim um, Torahs and send this shipment to Russia. Now you have to understand, these are books that were half Hebrew and half translated. There were copies of books from 1880s in old church Russian. And my uncle got a set like this, you know, a, a prayer book, a siddur and a chumash. It had nothing to do with it, so he gave it to me. And I was happy to take it. And in the siddur, you have all kinds of Jewish laws. So I was reading and I'm like, oh, that's, a, oh, interesting. And then I just started reading you know, the Torah, you know, I just had it there. So that was the start of my Jewish education. And then once we got to the United States, like I walked into the New York, you know, public library, you know, straight for the Judaica section and read everything on that, you know, on those shelves. And uh, then I joined, you know, NCSY. 
And then one day I just told my parents, I'm going to a Jewish school, I don't care. So I opened, you know, opened the yellow pages, you know, Jewish school, uh, got on the bus, knocked on the principal's, you know, door and say, hi, you know, I want to study here. He's like, which school was that? It's the Fresh School in New Jersey, sure. in Paramus. So I knocked on Robert Myers, you know, front door and I said, hi, you know, I want to study here. And he's like, where did you come from? Or where is your mother? And I said, who cares about my mother? I want to study here. And to his great, great credit, he took me in with some other kids who were just coming out from, you know, places like Russia. He set up a program for us. I was in 10th grade and I couldn't read Hebrew. Like, and he set up a program for kids like me. Um, so we really got, you know, accelerated the Jewish studies and set up scholarships for us and took care of scholarships to send me to Israel afterwards when I wanted to go for a gap year program. So I'm very, very grateful to him and other people like him that sort of helped me along the way to really fill in the gaps. And uh, I know by the end, I, by the time I finished 12th grade, I could make Aliyah, although I flunked Hebrew in high school. <laughs> and, you know, and Jewish, join uh, you know, a gap year program and study with other girls that were basically getting Jewish education since day one. It's incredible. It sounds like you have such a strong-minded approach were you always like that in other areas or was it really just when it came to judaism um i think i am a bit strong strong-headed um i i set my sights on things and it, it's really i don't think it's it's really my accomplishment i'm very grateful to god because i really feel like he guided me along the way every step of the way and i really feel privileged it's i feel totally privileged to have been guided in such a way and for things to have been designed by him in such a way that really made me to be where I am. So it's, it's not, a, <laughs> I try and then he does the rest. Wow. So you ended up newly observant, kind of on your own, and then deciding to not only do a gap year in Israel, which is fairly common for graduates of Jewish day schools, but to go all in and just make Aliyah right away. Um, what did you do at the beginning? I guess you went to study. Did, what was your plan? So when I finished high school, I was, you know, I really, I was going for a gap year because that was a sort of easy, cushy way to get to start in Israel. But it, as far as I was concerned, I wanted to really make Aliyah. And my mother made me sign a paper that at the end of the gap year program, I'll come back to America and go to, you know, Stern College in, in Manhattan. And she said, I'll go to Stern. It's a Jewish college and I'll start college and I know I'll stay. So I made good of my promise. I came back to New York for one semester at Stern College. <laughs> I did my time. <laughs> it's a great place. It's really a great place. I have a lot of friends that went there, but I hated every second of it because I really wanted to be back in Israel. And I finished my you know one semester and went right back, right back to Israel. So and then enrolled in, in in university and did my you know bachelor degree and got married. Where did you move early on? So I, by the time I met my husband during my gap year, and then went back to New York and came back, and we got married right away. Um, so, so he, he must have been pretty young, or at least you were. I was nineteen, and he was twenty-two at the time. Yeah, we we're pretty young. And our first home was in a tiny, tiny village called Male Hever. You have nobody heard of it. It's near Hebron. Near Hebron, it's literally in the middle of nowhere. We were 13 families at the time. 
the routine families. There's, there's a bus that would come once in the morning and go back once in the afternoon. Um, you know, not even a grocery store. And every morning, a bunch of us young women who studied in college in Jerusalem would have this ride that was a carpool that would take us to, to college. And after a year of that, and my husband studied in yeshiva in Hebron. So um, after a year of that, I said, no way, no. <laughs> I'm not staying here. Was your husband Israeli? Yes, my husband is Israeli and he's Yemenite. Oh, wow. Interesting. Russian and Yemenite. Right. We keep things interesting. So we moved to Beitel. It's a town outside of Jerusalem. We've been living in this area around Jerusalem ever since. Beautiful. So you, you studied, I think, business in college. Is that right? No, I actually started education. My big dream was to be a teacher. And just like I had amazing role models you know, who helped me you know, pick up speed and, and learn Judaism, I wanted to become a Judaic teacher. My husband said, you know, English is very, you know, English teachers are really need. It's going to be easy for you. Why don't you just, you know, do a degree in teaching English while you're at it? So I did. And I lasted exactly two years as an English teacher in the Israeli school system. And after two years, I said, no, you know how. You know, this is not for me. You know, I cannot deal with rowdy Israeli kids in, in class. Um, so I had another job for, for a while. And then when my kids were young, I said, you know, I can't have kids and, and, and work nine to five every day. So basically, knowing three languages, I started a translation company out of my house. That was a way to make money and still be there for my kids. What kind of documents did you translate? Oh, like literally everything. In the beginning, everything. And then as years went by, a lot of marketing, a lot of uh, business uh, stuff and uh, political. And I worked a lot with uh, nonprofits and NGOs. So I actually had a lot of clients like that. You know, and I was just marketing my business, you know, by the seat of my pants, so to speak. And at one point, I decided to get a business consultant to help me grow this business. And he introduced me to this whole concept of business development and marketing. There's actually science to this. There's actually a method, you know, there is a, not a method, I'm mixing my, um, you know, there's, there, there, there is a structured way to do this. And I started learning and reading books about business development. And I loved that much more than translation. So. Um, I closed the translation company and, you know, went for coaching certificate and then master's. I got a master's when I was 40 and had six kids. Why not? Why not, right? And I've been consulting, I've been consulting companies and women who want to open businesses for the past seven years. What are some of the unique challenges that you encounter when you're counseling women specifically? And why did you make that kind of your niche? So what I'm seeing is just like I went to a transformation when I was around 35, you know, going from one field to a different field. I'm seeing that a lot of women around the age of 40 have this need to figure out, okay, who am I going to be? What am I going to do when I grow up? And a lot of women around, you know, age 40 make this transition, but it usually comes with, you know, the midlife crisis of, is this it? Like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm not satisfied. It's got to be something more. I'm not using my talents. A lot of people feel, a lot of women feel um, unsettled around this age. And having gone through this, I developed the tools how to help people really figure out what's their God-given mission. Like, what did God bring you into this world to do? We all have something unique 
that we can bring into the world that nobody else can. This is something that Hasidic teachings actually teach us. Every person is unique. Like, think of a really big puzzle, right? Um, so there are lots of small pieces, but you can't, no piece can substitute a different piece. And they all look the same, but they're all different. And if you have one little piece missing, the whole puzzle is just not worth anything. So each one of us is like that. There is a certain piece that only you can play. And when you do that, when you know what it is, and when you connect to it, you feel like the top of the world. You feel satisfied. You feel happy. You feel energized. You feel like you could be doing this, you know, 24-7 or 24-6. And it's something you're really uniquely capable of doing. The flip side of it is that we also have something that's called tikkun, some kind of trade that we need to fix in ourselves. You know, we all have that one or two um, character traits that we're not so happy with in ourselves. You know, one person is, you know, perfectionist, and one person has fears, and one person has, you know, maybe um, is a spendthrift. You know, we all have those character traits where we don't like in ourselves, but what the Torah tells us is that you didn't choose it. God gave it to you. It's a package deal. God gave you all these qualities and capabilities, and God also gave you something to fix in you because you're not perfect, you know? And usually the capabilities and the shortcomings, the two sides of the same coin. So when people understand that, they can work through the difficulty and utilize their skills and find a way to connect to this kind of work in a way that serves the bigger world and people are willing to pay for it and then you can build a business around that and do something you love every morning and get paid for it so this is a challenge a lot of women are facing around the age of 40. why 40 by the way do you think that it's because maybe their children are getting a little bit older and they have more headspace to think about it or is it something about the age itself so so the jewish tradition tells us that 40 is the age of bina Binah is, is sort of is a certain analytical quality. Like you only get certain kind of analytical understanding around the age of 40. It's also the children leaving, but I think it's also, you know, at 20, the, you know, our parents or the world tell us that you should be a doctor, you know, a lawyer, or like, like my mother. So you can be a doctor or, or a lawyer. You know, we live in a democracy. You can choose any kind of doctor you want to be. <laughs> what about engineer? Come on, you're Russian. No, that's not, that's her voice, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although my grandmother was a chemist in 1938, but I okay. I believe it. I like many Russian <laughs> women who probably, you know, couldn't do any of that when she came, if she came over, you know. Right. But I'm joking. No, I wasn't engineering, was not, not but no stretch of imagination was engineering a possibility for me. But, um. When we're young, at 20, we make these choices not based on this deep self-awareness and understanding, but based on family pressure, peer pressure, you know, what's out there, what, you know. And then people started this career course of, you know, 15, 20 years where they, you know, this is what they've been educated to do. And after 15, 20 years, they've, they've had enough of it. It's, if it's not who you are, if the, you can, how long can you work at something that's really not, you, you know, you it gets very tiring and i think people you know reach that place where they really want something else and they have another 15 20 another 20 years before they go to into retirement so you know you've got to do it sometimes so for some people it's 35 and other people it's 50 but you know it's somewhere 
on the two sides of 40. So how do you help women discover what their inner latent talents are and their blockages and, and then of course how to monetize that? Okay. So it's, it's a process. It's not a long process, but it's, it, it takes a lot of courage. I have specific questions I ask people and I also listen very deeply to hear what people are saying, what people are not saying, what kind of stories they're telling, and then sort of reflect it back to them. And um, I find that people who come to me sort of deal with specific issues that I have, you know, I have knowledge of. Um, and I think our generation has very specific challenges. Like, for example, perfectionism is a very specific challenge of our generation. A lot of people feel, you know, that they have to struggle with perfectionism. Another thing is that our self-worth is dependent on our accomplishments and achievements. A lot of people feel like if they didn't accomplish this or they didn't become that, they didn't do everything on their to-do list, whatever their to-do list looks like, or they didn't get a specific degree or they didn't get a specific job or they didn't have enough care or whatever. Every, you know, every society has their own benchmark of what you need to do to be worthy. And I think today, no society, you know, in the West um, is free of that. And people walk around with this feeling of unworthiness and, and being unlovable because they haven't, you know, checked off all the, all the check marks that they've been conditioned they need to check off. And really working with women to let go of that. You know, you don't, you're worthy because God put you here and he thinks you're worthy enough to live another day. That's the beginning, middle, and end of your worthiness. That's it. Now, anything you do that's amazing, that's step two. So this is, this is you know, for many people, I feel self-worthiness in one way or another, or another is a challenge. What would be an example of, let's say, something that a woman you've worked with has been able to, to accomplish, a breakthrough, and then how that kind of expressed itself practically? Oh, wow. Um, let me think. I have a client who is a very accomplished woman, very accomplished woman, and she told me that she started every Monday, you know, in the States, every Monday, she started the work work by throwing up, just from the stress of having to meet all the deadlines and making sure that everybody's, you know, happy and that her boss is happy and her co- uh, just, just from the stress of being up to par. And when I told her about this idea of, you know, self-worthiness, she's like, what did you take that from? <laughs> it makes no sense. You know, I am worthy if I do A, B, C, D, and G. And, and after a couple of conversations, said, you know, I went to work this weekend and didn't throw up. So that, that's a start of a journey. Um, What's interesting is that she wasn't switching her job. She was just changing her mindset. Right. It was the same job. It was the same place. It had the same requirements. It, Nothing about the job changed, but she changed a little bit. I've met women who've been abused, especially financially abused by their husbands. For example, a woman whose husband said, you know, is either the business that you want and love, you know, a woman who is an artist, and she had this business around her art that she absolutely loved. And the husband said, it's, no, it's me or the, or, the, or the business, and he wouldn't give her money. He, it, it was a case of financial abuse. And within a month, she was at a place where she said, you know, th- this business is about my soul being expressed. I'm not going to give it up for anything. 
and you know he didn't leave he sort of understood that this you know he loved her obviously but you know he thought he could control her and once she was at a place where she would not let him control her they renegotiated their relationship they're still married but it's a different marriage okay so you've all of this is a fascinating story by itself all the business and and the consulting and everything like that and yet none of it sounds like it has anything to do with the western wall <laughs> <laughs> yeah at some point you know you, you seem to have gotten involved with advocacy in a in a very specific arena surrounding the western wall obviously as i mentioned when I, at the introduction the western wall the whaling wall the the hotel however you call it is such a a central you know focal point for jewish life um it's a flashpoint in many ways for jewish life and really for all of the monotheistic faiths in a certain way that at least that neighborhood and it has quite a bit of of course history and but but also contemporary realities politics and all kinds of uh complicated issues. I actually interviewed uh, Suli Eliyav, the, uh, the director of the Kotel, on the podcast, and we became friendly and uh, a wonderful man. So I know a little bit about it, and of course, I've followed the news over the years, but there, there was kind of a, some controversy that emerged over the years uh, surrounding you know, gender roles at the wall and the type of prayer that would take place there and, and so forth. So you got to give us a, a broad history of this whole saga. And then, of course, what do you have to do with it? Where did you enter the picture? So it's really, it's not related, but it sort of is related. So it's, it's a, you know, talking about God getting you into all kinds of places. I go to the Western Wall very often. Um, and I usually go to the Western Wall tunnels. There's a space there that's right across from the Holy of Holies. It's the closest place to the, the closest, holiest place. And there's actually a space there where only women can pray. You have to deal with a lot of tour groups walking by. <laughs> yes, you do. You have to come with the earplugs. So one day I went to pray there. It was about seven years ago, exactly when this whole story was women of the wall, you know, got a lot of press coverage and, and I think got a little bit out of hand. And as I was walking through the tunnels, I have this idea of, hey, I'm going to write a blog post in Times of Israel and invite women of the wall to come and pray at this spot inside the, inside the tunnel. And, you know, they can pray. It doesn't have to be a media circus. And, and that's it. So I wrote this fairly short um, blog post in Times of Israel. It was like opening a Pandora's box because I think I got a thousand responses to that post and they sort of divided into two parts half of the of the um, responses were like who are you shut up we don't care what you think and you know women of the wall don't need you to tell you don't need you to tell them what to do and the other half were people saying wow somebody's saying exactly what i'm thinking and that second part the first half was whatever but the second part told me that wait there's a whole voice that's not being expressed. And I had a few conversations with some friends. And what we realized is that in this whole issue of women of the wall, who are really on a good month, I group of maybe 50 to 100 women, really. That, that's the size of their gathering. 
but there are literally hundreds of thousands of women who come to the Western Wall all the time. It's their spiritual home, and they have a say. They want to have a say in how this place is managed. They're not interested in changing the status quo. They're not interested in changing the tradition of the Western Wall. And nobody bothered to ask them, ladies, what, what are your thoughts about this? Nobody bothered to know to ask them. And not only that, when these women come up to women of the wall and they say, please don't do this, or we're offended, or this place has a tradition, please stop. So women of the wall really treat them in ways that are not nice. And I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> I'm being very careful with my words. The, the, you know. Can you give a little bit of history of what even was and is women, women of the wall, and you know, where did it start, and kind of what was the background there for those who are not familiar? So Women of the Wall is a moving start about, about 30 years ago. There was a uh, Jewish feminist women conference in Jerusalem, and they basically decided to come and have a women's prayer group at, at the Western Wall. And what they do is they come to the Western Wall, to the women's section, and they try to pray in, in ways that are traditionally uh, that men pray with talit, with a Jewish prayer shawl, or with a, with a tefillin. And this is not how the tradition plays out at the Western Wall, because Western Wall is a prayer space, and it's managed based on the Jewish tradition. Oh, they come once a month, and they you know the regular worshippers are just not, not happy about that, because that place is, has its own tradition. Just like every synagogue, church, and mosque in the world have a prayer tradition, and it's respected, and you wouldn't think to walk into any prayer house and, and to pray differently from, what, from its tradition. The Western Wall has 1,500 years of prayer tradition, so what the traditional worshipers ask is that their, this worship tradition be preserved. So the first thing we did after I wrote this blog post and spoke to my friends was to actually reach out to women of the wall and say, Ladies, how about we get together for an informal coffee? You know, let's, you know, this is how we're doing business. If I want to talk to somebody, if there's an issue, if there's conflict, you sit down for a cup of coffee, you try to figure it out. So, so I, you know, got through to the women of the wall and I said, ladies, how about we get together for a cup of coffee? You know, seven years later, I'm still waiting for that cup of coffee. They basically, you know, there's nobody to talk to there. And we really made a very wide effort to reach out and to sound the voice of women who want to preserve the tradition at the Western Wall. And within three weeks on you know, the next Rosh Chodesh, the next uh, first day of the Jewish month, but 10,000 women at the Western Wall praying with us. And the next month we had 5,000, 15,000. We did this for like six months until the government asked us to stop so they could work out some kind of compromise, which they didn't. So in the past few years, we've had about a thousand, you know, women and girls come out to pray with us every month. So let me, uh, if I can play devil's advocate for a minute and, and kind of push back a little bit and ask maybe some tough questions. Um, I'm sure there are none that are new to you. So the Western Wall obviously was out of our reach for, for many, many years. Obviously, we had some access to it until 1948. And then we didn't have access until 1967. 1967 came, and of course, it was sort of reestablished. But I guess one would ask, you know, why does the more traditional factions get to decide that this is how it, you know, you give the analogy to a synagogue or a mosque or a church where there's an established 
membership and they have a certain style of prayer. So the membership has the right to make that choice. And I think people understand that you can't come in and change that from the outside. But the Western Wall ostensibly is membership is the whole Jewish people. So who gets to decide what that is and why do they get to decide? And, and even if for thousands of years it was one way, but it's only the last couple of decades that we even have it in the, in the modern world. So, you know, why does that decision fall into specific hands and so forth? Okay, so, so there, I think the three ways we'll go discuss this. There's the historic reality, there's the legal reality, and then there is, okay, like, you know, what are we going to do about it? So historically, Jews have been praying along the Western Wall for the past 1,500 years. There was no mechitza, there was no separation between men and women, which is really what makes it a traditional prayer space, because the, the Turks and then the Brits would not allow that. And actually, in 1929, when the secular Zionists wanted to assert the Jewish right to the Western Wall, what they did was to bring a mechitza, a, separate, you know, a screen between men and women, and they were secular. But that was to them a sign that this is a Jewish place of worship. So as soon as Israel reclaimed the right to the Western Wall, the, the um, control over the Western Wall, they turned it into a traditional into a prayer space that really managed based on the same principles that's been managed all the, this whole, all these years. Men and women always pray there separately, and we have documents from going back literally 600 years back uh, about that. So that's the historic, you know, reality of it. And in Israel, there's also law. And there is, in the end, it's a democracy. And it's managed by law. And the Ministry of Religion has control over all the religious spaces of all religions. And they are all managed based on the tradition of that spot. So this is the law. If, if women over the wall want to change the law, they're right. But they're not, they're not trying to change the law. They're trying to impose their will on the will of the people who come and pray there. And the third thing, I think it's really important for people to understand, especially in the United States. In the United States, you know, the reform movement, let's say, is the biggest movement. There are you know, 1.5 million Jews are members of the reform movement in the United States. You know, 600,000 members of the conservative movement, okay. But there's 17 million Jews in the world. And Anywhere you go outside the United States, whether it's Russia or France or Britain or Australia or South Africa or Israel, even people who are not religiously observant, when they go to synagogue, they go to an Orthodox synagogue. They might drive there, but for the overwhelming majority of world Jewry, a synagogue is an Orthodox synagogue, even if they personally are not Orthodox you know, and observant. So the Western Wall looks the way it does because for the overwhelming majority of world Jewry, this is what a synagogue looks like. Now, practically speaking, the Israeli government established an alternative Western Wall along the same wall, 100, 100 yards down the same exact wall. They created a separate plaza for egalitarian prayer. And that's Robinson's Arch? Robinson's Arch. And anybody can pray there any way they want. And women of the wall have not made any use of it for the past 17 years. So that begs the question, is it really about prayer or is it about activism? So 
I, I hear that point, and I guess the response could potentially be, maybe it is about activism. They want to create a space where people from all, you know, everyone would feel comfortable. And I guess you would respond that you can't make everyone feel comfortable. In other words, if some people are comfortable, automatically others are going to be uncomfortable. That's just the reality because these are mutually exclusive types of activities. Yes, I would say that, but I would say more. I think women of the wall have taken a position that I would call presumptuous. What I mean by that, and they've written extensively about it. They've written extensively about their mission to educate the uh, downtrodden Orthodox women about feminism and liberal progressive values. And I take that as an affront. I don't need anybody to liberate me. And, and my you know, fellow observant women are not downtrodden. We don't need anyone to liberate us. We make choices and we choose this lifestyle. Now, I think actually the opposite is true. When you tell women that to be worthy and to be equal, they need to assume male traditional roles. And we're to fill in because men were to fill in. And pray with a prayer shawl because men pray with a prayer shawl. And do what men do. What you're really saying is that women cannot be worthy and equal unless they do what men do. And I find that as an affront. We have our own models. Women don't have to become men to become worthy. And I think for me, this is the biggest issue with all of feminism. I'm strongly for women's empowerment. I'm strongly for women's rights. I really believe that women should be strong and should you know, make the best and most of their right life and to have all the rights that they need to have. But I don't think women need to be looking to men for the model of how to be in order to be worthy and equal. What would you respond if somebody would say, look, why do you care? Just live and let live. They're not bothering you. They're not forcing you to join their service. They just want to have a service and, you know, either a different part of the, even, you know, further back in the plaza or wherever on their own, you know, why not as kind of the, the liberal value of live and let live? So that's a great question. So the two parts of it, the first part is when the women of the world come to pray, you cannot pray quietly at the Western world. There's just so much noise and media presence around it that, People cannot pray quietly. Um, Although I would imagine their goal of normalization were that every time it wouldn't be a media circus. It would, that's only as a gateway to get to a, a different status well, it's quo. Been this way for the past 30, it's been this way for a while. You know, it didn't start today and then start yesterday. So that's, not, that's part of it. Look, I really don't care how to pray. I'm not going to tell any woman, you know, you should pray this way or, or man, it doesn't matter. I don't care how other people pray. And their relationship with God is their business. And certainly, I'm not going to judge people because every one of us has a story and we all come from different places. So I really don't care how other people pray. And, you know, if they need a venue for their form of prayer, you know, I'll be happy to offer my living room. But once you take your style of prayer and you impose it on other people and, and on a space that really has a tradition, and you do it in a way um, that makes a statement telling other women that they're not good enough, that's not okay. It's not about living with love. It's really becoming offensive. And other women find it offensive. And then when other women find it offensive, 
then women of the law play the victim card. And I find this whole dynamic to be unhealthy and unproductive. There's no shortage of places and venues where women of the wall can pray any way they want. But I'll tell you one more thing, which really, really, really pushed me and motivated me, me was when I, after I wrote that blog post, women of the wall weren't really on my radar. I have seven kids and a business, and I wasn't looking for an extracurricular activity. But then I started researching, like, who are these women? And I went online, and I see them on CNN and BBC and all kinds of places with an anti-Israel agenda, telling the world that Israel has no women's rights, that Israel has no religious rights, comparing themselves to rape victims. And in my book, first of all, none of these things are true. Not, none of these things are factual. And telling the world uh, lies about Israel, that Israel doesn't have women's rights uh, or religious rights, is just wrong. It's wrong to blackface Israel for your agenda. Have you been able to counter any of that through media appearances? I know it's not as popular, you know, your, your position probably. So have you been able to secure those kinds of media appearances to offer a, a counterbalancing voice or are you not able to, to get that kind of access? Oh, absolutely. I've had that kind of access and we've been interviewed by, I think, just about every major media outlet in the world. Like I've stopped counting, you know, the TV and the radio and the and the, uh, and the news um, appearances. And I also get to talk to a lot of groups. I get to talk to birthright groups and massage groups and, you know, college students and women's groups. A lot of them invite me. Sometimes they invite, you know, women over the wall and then, and then one of us. I've been able to talk to a lot, a lot of groups about this and, and create an understanding that, you cannot take, you know, typical American values and use them as a measuring stick for other things because American discourse is all about rights. American culture is built on the Bill of Rights that, you know, and everything Americans think about is in terms of rights, you know, your rights and my rights. The word right in this sense does not appear anywhere in Jewish literature. There is no word. We don't have language for rights in Judaism because it's all about responsibilities. The way we preserve a society in Judaism is by every person being mindful of their responsibility towards the other. And once we're in this conversation of responsibilities, there is no point to talk about rights. Because when we talk about rights, you know, you want to have your rights and I want to have my rights, and then we're in conflict. You know, but when you think you're mindful of your responsibilities and I'm mindful of my responsibilities, then we can start to have a conversation. And then we're going to fight about who's going to be, you know, more mindful about his rights. You know, am I, who's going to do more of what he's responsible for? And, you know, I find it's really fascinating because the reason that the Western wall is so holy to us is because it's the rest, last remnant we have of the temple, of the holy temple that was burned down 2,000 years ago. And there's a classical Jewish commentator, the Ramban, he lived about 800 years ago. And he asked the question, what was the absolutely holiest place in Jewish history? If you had to point one place in one time, that was the holiest place in Jewish history. What was that place? And it's not the temple. The temple is just a replay of the holiest place. And the holiest place in Jewish history, do you, want, are you, Harry, are you, do you know this one? I do, but, but I, don't, I won't spoil it. It's the tent of our foremothers. 
the ten of our foremothers of Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, that's the holiest place in Jewish history. And the temple is just a replay of that. You know, it's a it's a reconstruction of of that tent. And we as Jews, we're not we're not religion of the synagogue, we're religion of the home. The home is the central religious institution of Judaism. And the women are really tasked with being the high priestess of this central, you know, religious space. And the synagogue was all its importance is secondary to that. So to tell the women they have to go pray as men, the way men pray in the synagogue at the temple that replaced the holiest place in the Jewish history that was the tent of our foremothers, it's ironic. You know, you have your responsibilities, you have your central place, you can feel empowered there. Why be second fill though somewhere else? What's your reception been in these other media outlets? Um, it varies. Sometimes it's hostile, sometimes it's understanding, but I, I've really been able to create dialogue. With, I'm, I'm really, media is important, and I'm mean, working in the media today, so I really understand the importance. But I really, I think, talking to groups and, and talking to people face to face, I think is the most important thing. And we all come from different viewpoints, but I thank God we've been, I've been able to establish this kind of dialogue with a lot of groups and a lot of people. You mentioned that you've been invited to, I guess, debates or, or panels before with women of the law. Have you ever had a formal debate with Anat Hoffman, for example, or anyone on, on that side of the, of the machitza, so to speak? <laughs> So I haven't, but one of the women who was involved in this with me in the beginning, you know, in the beginning of this journey was um, a few years ago. We've had that. I, you know, debate's important and nice, but I think I think that cup of coffee would probably do more to bring understanding. So I'll wait. I waited seven years. I can wait some more. How do you think this all ties into the larger questions of religious coercion in Israel? You know, you talk about the Ministry of Religious Affairs having a certain standard at the wall. I think that's almost kind of a microcosm for how society functions more broadly in Israel. And oftentimes, the, the more secular population is feeling resentful of that and feeling like there's kind of this hegemony and, and so forth. Do, do you see this as kind of a, a microcosmic example or sort of a, a, a paradigm of a broader issue? Or do you see it as a kind of an independent and really unique phenomenon? So Israel is defined as the Jewish state. Once you define Israel as the Jewish state, you have to decide what Jewish is. And we're a state where it's for not plus it's not a, a theoretical rhetorical question. It's it's you know, it's the fabric of our life. If we're a Jewish state, what does that mean? What does that look like? So one of the things it means that Shabbat, you know, Sabbath, that's the day of rest. You know, what does it mean? Who is Jewish? What, there have to be standards, you know, in any functional government. And I know it's, it's, it's funny for Americans with separation of church and state, you don't think in these terms. It's weird and, and, and unnatural. But Israel is a Jewish state. And if it's going to be a Jewish state, there has to be a definition and there have to be structures for this. So as a state that wants to preserve its Jewish nature, we have to have those structures like Shabbat, like deciding that every government building is going to have a mezuzah, 
like deciding that the army is going to be kosher, uh, like deciding that we're going to have laws about who is Jewish and who is not Jewish. And early on, around 1948, when the state was established, so you know the, the government was secular, it wasn't that the religious Jews decided to create the Ministry of Religion. It's that the Ben-Gurion, who was completely secular and more of an atheist, really, and his ruling socialist party decided to set the Israel up in this way because they had the wisdom and the, and the foresight to understand that Israel really is a heterogeneous state and the religious Jews and the non-religious Jews. And the religious Jews were really a minority, not only in terms of numbers, but politically as well. Really have to live together. So they created what's called a status quo. And a status quo means that we know Everybody gets to get something, and everybody gets to give some, up something. It's a, it's a compromise. Now, this status quo has been becoming pro progressively more secular over the years. Today, Israel is not more religious than it was in 1948. It's much, much less religious in its government structures, while the population is actually much more traditional and much more mindful of Jewish traditions than it was in, in, in the past, and the religious community much, much bigger than it was then. So on the one hand, the religious population is growing, but the religious nature of the state of Israel is becoming less felt. So it's really not about coercion, and unfortunately, there's also a lot of anti-religious coercion in Israel. Uh, we've seen that happen often. And I really think that's not the way. I think the way for us is to sort of all to try to, it's, real, it's once again, it's not about rights. It's about responsibilities. It's about everybody having, you know, taking the responsibility of being a mensch and trying to understand the other side and trying to work things out. I think if we go at it with more of an understanding, there's a way to do it. Where are things now, as we stand today, you know, May 26, 2020, I mean, I guess nobody's going to the wall right now because of Corona, uh, or very few people from the pictures I could see. Actually, on the past Rosh Chodesh, the, you know, the first month of the first day of the month, I think there were about 500 women who came to pray at the Western Wall. Socially distanced? Yes. No, it's a place, I think there's room there for like a few thousand women, there were 500. That's what we could do with social distancing. I don't know. I don't have a solution. You know, you don't always have solutions for everything. You sort of do your best and then you let God take care of things. So we do what we think is best and we leave everything else up to him. What would you say you hope to accomplish moving forward? And do you have anything that you're planning that's different or new for the organization? Um, no, we're really the same. There is an ongoing Supreme Court case in this case. Um, the Supreme Court has been dragging its feet because it really doesn't want to rule on it. So um, I, I really hope that the time comes and women of the wall understand that they are welcome to pray any way they want. They have this, an opportunity to pray exactly as they want, you know, 100 yards down the same exact wall. And I really hope that they understand or maybe make, make an effort to understand how thousands of other women are feeling and have a little bit of empathy for that. Well, we have empathy for how they feel, and there's a room for them to pray exactly as they want. Low asking is a similar empathy, no back. Leah Aroni, entrepreneur, coach, consultant, and also an advocate 
through the organization Women for the Wall. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.